This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm joined once again by fan favorite James Kukios. James is a partner at Morrison & Forrester, and we take up the firm's November 2020 newsletter for international anti-corruption developments. Some of the topics include the OCD, OECD report, Lodge U.S. enforcement efforts, and increased enforcement efforts by the Netherlands, the World Bank debars a German firm, we take a look at anti-corruption developments in Mexico and uh, concerning Venezuela, particularly around export control. Conclude with a discussion of China and its repatriation of fugitives to stand trial in the country of China. I know you'll enjoy this episode with James. It's always great. I also hope you will check out my new podcast, ComTech on the Intersection of Compliance and Technology with my co-host, Valerie Charles. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network. Check it out. I know you will enjoy it. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I'm thrilled to have back with me my good friend, James Kukios, partner at Morrison and Forrester, to talk about the always great firm monthly international anti-corruption letter. James, uh, first of all, welcome. And I would note for our audience who cannot see you that behind you, it's snowing. It is snowing, and I'm also going to note for our audience that can't see you, Tom, that you are wearing a Michigan football sweatshirt, which I highly approve of. <laughs> well, in spite of our season, go blue. Uh, in spite of our season. Uh, James, uh, I wanted to visit with you to start with. We had the OECD report released, and you've talked a little bit in the past about uh, your work on these OECD reports, but I was wondering if you could maybe review for us what the OECD process is, how they do it, uh, why they do it, and what their findings were with regard to the United States in this most recent report. Sure. So the OECD is, of course, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And one of the many things they have is the Anti-Bribery Convention. And the members of the Anti-Bribery Convention have a very rigorous peer review system where the different um, convention members uh, review each other in terms of how they are complying with the anti-bribery convention. It's a very detailed process. I was actually part of it for the Russia phase two evaluation. It's a very um, lengthy questionnaire that's sent to the country. The country then answers that there can be several rounds of follow-up between the OECD staff, the examining countries. There's two examining countries for these so there could be a lot written back and forth. And then depending on which phase it is, there's also an in-person um, stage to that. And so the two examining countries, along with the OECD staff, will go to the country that's being examined. They'll meet with leaders from that country for several days. And then they'll meet with civil society groups, law groups, and others outside of the government to also discuss anti-corruption issues as well. And so they're evaluated in all parts of the anti-bribery convention. Does the law, um, does the foreign bribery offense match with the elements in the anti-bribery convention? Are there a sufficient um, means of publicizing the anti-bribery offense? Uh, are there anti-money laundering 
provisions being um, pursued? Um, how is the international mutual legal assistance cooperation going for that country? There's a whole, it's a very, very um, intense process with a lot of uh, different parts. And then when that's done, the OECD staff and the two examining countries write a very lengthy report um, where they set out the findings uh, of these. And then that goes to the um, plenary at the um, OECD anti-bribery convention working group. People debate the um, uh, the merits and the findings. The the country being examined can file objections, seek clarifications. There's basically a big peer review of the report, and then once that's done, it's released publicly. Um, they're really, in my opinion, they're really great reports. The OECD staff, in particular, are real experts on international law. They they really get to understand the laws of the various countries and the systems. The examining countries, usually the people on the um, examining country staff, like I was, are enforcement attorneys. So they have a really good insight into, uh, you know, uh, the prosecution investigation process and things like that. We also had um, Commerce Department experts, State Department experts, you know, a lot of subject matter experts to help evaluate it. And it results in a very good, um, very uh, thorough report. Um, and I always tell people, you know, if you want to learn about the lands legal landscape when it comes to enforcement and anti-bribery and things like that in the country, you should read these things because they're really good. Um, and they have a lot of impact. Um, there is a lot of teeth behind these. And the OECD over the years has used these reports to, to really um, praise developments from certain countries and to shame other countries into doing what the working groups thinks they should be doing. So, um, you know, a lot of people say, and I think it's true, that one of the impetuses behind the UK Bribery Act, for example, was a very negative um, uh, uh, OECD working group um, report on what the UK was doing in terms of their enforcement of the um, foreign bribery offense. Similar, the Brazilian Clean Companies Act, a lot of people credit that to OECD um, evaluation as well, in many, in not solely, but in many ways. And so they're very impactful um, reports, and I recommend people read them, and they really do have an impact. So what uh, were some of the highlights for, for you from the uh, uh, analysis of the U.S. Um, enforcement? It was a very interesting report in how positive it was. Um, you know, the phase three report was back in the um, early 2010s. And at that time, the U.S. was, you know, head and shoulders above every other country in terms of enforcement. I mean, they'd been doing it longer. They'd been doing more. But the working group still found things to criticize. Very interesting this time uh, around in 2020, it, there was very little criticism at all. Um, it was amazingly positive. I mean, the, the words like praised were used in it. Uh, the report praised the United States for its sustained commitment to enforcing the foreign bribery offense and other acts, um, activities the U.S. was taking. And the, um, if there were any recommendations or criticisms, they were, they were relatively minor and very technical. So it, really, the U.S. got a glowing like A-plus report card as part of this. Um, which was really interesting, um, and that you know you don't you don't usually see such a positive report, especially for one how lengthy and thorough it was. 
So if I could now turn to uh, also a report on the Netherlands, and it seemed they also, the OECD report on the Netherlands, and they applauded the increased enforcement efforts. Uh, what was your analysis of that uh, report? The Netherlands was a little bit more um, normal or typical, I'll say, because it was, um, you know, there's positives and negatives. So you're right. You picked up on the positive, Tom. The report favorably noted that foreign bribery enforcement had ramped up in the Netherlands. Um, and, and among other things, they credited that to that the Netherlands established specialized investigative and prosecutorial teams um, to really focus on the foreign bribery offense and that the Netherlands did a very good job working with uh, international law enforcement partners in cooperation. Um, those are things that the U.S. has obviously done as well. Um, and the Netherlands has done those things as well to to, to good accord, according to the OECD. That said, the OECD was a little balanced there. They said, um, you know, relative to the size and risk profile of the Dutch economy, you know, the Dutch are very involved in international commerce. They export a lot of things like that. Um, the OECD said they still weren't doing as enough cases relative to what the Dutch economy looks like. Um, and so they recommended some additional ways that the Dutch could potentially um, improve that. It, it was interesting to me because back the, just the month before October 2020, Transparency International had released a report, and they were very critical of the Dutch enforcement record um, for the foreign bribery offense. And I remember reading that thinking, well, that's unusual because many of the big resolutions over the last couple of years, including with the U.S., the Dutch have been involved. You know, a lot of the um, oil cases, the the Operation Car Wash cases, the Dutch have been involved. And I I was surprised by how negative Transparency International was about the Dutch. And I felt the OECD report reflected a little bit more what I understood to be the Dutch record, which is, of course, it could be better. That's true for most countries. But they've been pretty active, and they've been really cooperating with their international co- um, counterparts. So that's the the takeaway that I've got from the OECD report on the Netherlands, which was you know, generally doing a very good job, an active player in the foreign bribery space, but could do more. So I'd now like to turn to uh, a debarment of a German company by the World Bank. And here, James, I really wanted to use this as a way to uh, maybe have you explain what the World Bank's role in uh, the fight against anti-corruption is and how they use debarment as a tool that uh, many other countries uh, really don't use and, and how it's a little bit different. Sure. So, um, you know, obviously at the risk of stating the obvious, the World Bank gives loans for development projects in the developing world, and those can be high-risk jurisdictions. And when those loans are being used for development projects, you know, they're susceptible to all kinds of malfeasance, whether it be fraud, embezzlement, or in this case, foreign bribery. Uh, and the World Bank has been pretty active um, in trying to police all those things. They want to make sure that their funds are used for proper purposes and not improper purposes. And so they have an incentive and they they have pursued um, foreign bribery allegations as well. Um, now, they're not a obviously they're not a, a, an enforcement authority. They can't get anybody to to uh, you know plead guilty or go to jail or anything. But what they can do is they can debar uh, companies from doing World Bank projects in the future, and so they use that as their um, as their sanction, primarily in these uh, um, matters. 
And so here, they, that's what they did. They found that this German company had um, been involved in some improper conduct in Myanmar. Um, sounds very similar to many foreign bribery cases you'll hear about. There was a failure to disclose a commission paid to a local agent and then improperly um, improper travel for three officials related to the, to the project. And so the, but um, the World Bank was careful to note that even though the company was debarred for two and a half years, um, that was re- a reduced penalty because the company provided extraordinary cooperation and took voluntary remedial actions. So very similar that we would see with DOJ or SEC enforcement. Um, the World Bank is also trying to credit uh, cooperation and remediation as well. And I'll also note, Tom, you know, oftentimes, not always, but on occasion, the World Bank does work with local law enforcement as well. So, um, you know, the world, when I was at DOJ, the World Bank talked to us on occasion about certain cases. Um, same in other countries as well. The, they're willing to share information um, and uh, be, be, although not law enforcement, be kind of that law enforcement partner as well. It doesn't always happen because the cases that the World Bank pursues aren't um, always FCPA violations or rise to the level of a you know, criminal offense. Um, but there are certain occasions where the World Bank does interact and cooperate with law enforcement authorities around the world. So now I'd like to turn to Mexico. And I guess the, the first kind of overriding question is the political relations between our countries. They seem to have been um, at least colored by some recent actions uh, by the State Department, by the Department of Justice, and by the Mexican officials. I don't know if that would impact people who do what you used to do uh, as a line prosecutor, but uh, I wondered uh, how some of the overriding concerns between our two countries might negatively, or I shouldn't say negatively, impact the ability of the Department of Justice to uh, bring corrupt officials to, uh, to justice. You know, the as you well know, and I'm sure many of your listeners, the U.S. and Mexico have always had a very delicate relationship when it comes to law enforcement. On the one hand, they're great partners. You know, there's been a lot of cooperation in the anti-narcotics and anti-money laundering sphere. On the other hand, there's always um, we've got a we've got a delicate history going back where you know the U.S. has invaded Mexico and gone to war with Mexico, and there's always a um, a concern on the Mexican side that the U.S. is overstepping its bounds and maybe trying to um, exert too much influence in Mexico. So there's there's always a delicate trade-off between the two countries where you know we want to cooperate where our law enforcement interests are aligned, but the Mexicans are always a little bit skeptical of us in terms of overreaching. And we saw that happen in uh, November. Um, there was a there was a big case. Um, really, it happened October of 2020, where the U.S. arrested a, Mexican, a former Mexican general and accused him of accepting bribes from a drug cartel. Uh, the allegations were interesting. They basically said that um, this Mexican general had um, uh, accepted bribes from one particular cartel to ensure that the military actions were only undertaken against that cartel's rivals. I mean, if you ever read in any of the books by uh, uh, the cartel or any of those books, um, you know, really it was like ripped from the headlines. It was really interesting to me, you know, the, 
the whole favoring one cartel over the other and things like that. So that was the allegations that this general was basically taking bribes from one cartel to go after other cartels. Um, and when that general um, flew into Los Angeles in October 2020, he was arrested. And that was a big deal. Um, the, there was, there was uh, I think it's a fair characterization to say there was outrage from the Mexican government. And so much so that some public reports suggested that Mexico had threatened to expel DEA agents from the country. Um, and basically, long story short, the U.S. ultimately agreed to dismiss the charges against um, this general in November of 2020 and send him back to Mexico. But as an outreach of this, there was some discussion by various Mexican officials that this would reduce law enforcement cooperation between the two countries, and Mexico would make sure that they would own, Mexican officials could only be prosecuted in Mexico. They wouldn't cooperate with U, the U.S. authorities to, um, to prosecute Mexican officials in the U.S. Now, who knows how long that's going to last? It's, it's possible that could blow over. Um, you know, we have a new administration. Maybe that was just over aggressiveness on one side or the other, um, but it could make these things more difficult. It, the 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 bribery has also always been a little bit of a touchy subject because that really does, in some ways, implicate state sovereignty. You know, when the U.S. is accusing a Mexican official of bribery, uh, that can be seen as an attempt to impinge on Mexican sovereignty. So that's always been a fraught area, but we saw it really come to a head in October and November. And we'll see if that really continues or not. Um, there's a big underlying investigation going on right now involving Pemex, the this national oil company in Mexico, um, where there are allegations, and who knows how credible there are, but successive Mexican presidents were involved in bribery um, involving Pemex. There was a Wall Street Journal article a couple months ago saying that the U.S. and SEC have opened up foreign bribery um, investigations uh, on the same topic. That will be really interesting to see if there is actually cooperation in that case, both generally and in light of this new development where we had this dust up between Mexico and U.S. about corruption allegations. So we'll have to wait to see how that plays out, especially under the new administration, and to see how the foreign policy relations between the two countries evolve. So, first of all, in Texas, we would not say the United States invaded Mexico. We would say Mexico invaded Texas. Um, so, fair enough. I, I was taking it from the Mexican standpoint in that <laughs> in that regard. But we also saw uh, Mexico pr- pursue some corruption allegations against a Mexican official and ask and receive from Spain the right to extradite a former Mexican government official who was living in Spain back to Mexico. So I found that, uh, you know, there was at least some news uh, positive around uh, an anti-corruption type perspective. Right. And that was the case I was mentioning um, before this big Pemex investigation. Um, And Spain did um, extradite a former Pemex president um, back to Mexico to stand trial for some alleged corruption involving Pemex when he was in charge. And he has apparently, according to reports, implicated several former Mexican presidents and other former high-ranking Mexican officials in alleged corruption schemes. And that's the one that DOJ and SEC have uh, uh, reportedly opened up investigations on. And and just wanted to follow up on one point. I mentioned the book, The Cartel. Of course, there's also The Border and um, The Power of the Dog. 
all by Don Winslow. I don't know if you've read those, Tom. Trilogy. The f- phenomenal books and having worked a little bit in that area, uh, the international cooperation in narcotics for between Mexico and the U.S., I think those books are fantastic. You learn so much about the history, even though it's obviously historical fiction, but it really does give you some good sense. And that's when I read this st- story about Mexican General Salvador Cienfuegos taking bribes to help one cartel over the other. I thought I was reading a Don Winslow book, not yeah. you know, not Reuters or Bloomberg. Uh, let me turn to the country that keeps on giving in the world of anti-corruption and FCPA, and that's Venezuela. And what I'd like to start with is Citco, and I would like to start with that because that's a Houston-based company, so there's lots of interest here around what's happening to Citco. But on the, the flip side is the U.S. government has, I think, moved towards um, classifying Citco as a instrumentality of the Venezuelan government because of their ownership of the company. And we've seen... I think a few cases, uh, enforcement actions, I should say, previously. But this really um, is, uh, I would say, a little bit new development because Citco is domiciled in the United States, although once again owned by uh, Petabesa, the uh, national oil company. So I wonder maybe sort of what your thoughts are around Citco. Are you, are you guys getting questions on this? I know I am here in Houston, and uh, it seems to me to be a very delicate situation that we all need to if not tread carefully, tread with consideration. This is a fascinating case. You know, this is uh, this was an investigation um, uh, that started even when back while I was in the department into PDVSA, the state-owned oil company of, of Venezuela, where there were allegations that various um, companies and business executives were paying bribes to PDVSA um, uh, purchasing agents to get, you know, to get contracts and to get paid and things like that. And, um, it's been a whole series. I think it's 20 plus people have been, um, charged in this thing, been very successful. And when they started out, they were really, you know, very closely tied to Pedavesa. Um, and now, as you said, Tom, we're now getting to Sitco and it's a fascinating, it is really fascinating to see what will happen in terms of whether courts will agree that Sitco is an instrumentality of, of the Venezuelan government. So just a little background here. In August of 2020, uh, DOJ announced that it had um, charged a former Sitco petroleum company procurement official with money laundering. Uh, the theory there was he was a foreign official because he was an official of Sitco and that he received bribes to steer um, business advantages to various other companies. They couldn't charge him under that theory with an FCPA violation because under that theory, he's an official himself. And so they charged him with money laundering. Well, he actually admits he did all that. He said, he essentially admits that he took the bribes and he essentially admits that he steered business to these companies in exchange for those bribes. But what he says, and he he filed a motion in November of 2020, asking for the government's specific theory on how he's a foreign official. So in other words, I took the bribes, I took them in exchange for giving this business benefit, but how are you going to prove I was a foreign official for purposes of the FCPA? Um, And DOJ responded that it will prove a trial that Sitco was an instrumentality of the Venezuelan government, 
on the specific issue, they said, we don't need to provide you with our roadmap or, you know, give you advanced notice of exactly how we're going to do that. But they said, we are going to go to trial and we're going to prove that Sitco, this Houston-based U.S. headquartered company, is an instrumentality of the Venezuelan government. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Um, You know, I tried the Eskenazi case, which led to the only appellate court decision on how to determine whether a company is an instrumentality of a foreign government. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how DOJ applies that in this case. I don't know all the facts of Sitco, so I, I, I can't opine on that. But I think it is, as you rightly point out, Tom, very fascinating that a U.S.-based company could potentially be considered an instrumentality of, of the Venezuelan government. So we'll have to wait to see how this plays out. But I think this is a really important case to watch for uh, people working in this space. So if I could complicate it even more a little bit, the current board of Sitco was appointed by uh, Nicholas Cuardo, I believe is his name, but the um, the other president of Venezuela, that the one that's recognized by the United States and the United Kingdom. And um, so that's in the United States. Of course, Pedavesa uh, uh, does not recognize those board members, but the U.S. government does. And so we have the even more anomalous situation that the sitting government in Venezuela, who's alleged to uh, Sitco's alleged to be the instrumentality of, actually doesn't control Sitco. And I'm in groups with uh, compliance groups here in Houston with people who are employed in Sitco, and they, you know, are either very concerned or very confused. And I think many of the contractors to Sitco, it's kind of percolating down to their level that they may have been a supplier, they may be in the plant, they may have done work for years for Sitco, and now they're looking at, has our relationship changed? Because the U.S. government has said in this one lawsuit, you are an instrumentality of the federal government. I pose all of those, not as uh, having answers to them, but just a series of questions that has really uh, arisen in in a very different way. It'll be very, that's that's interesting facts, Tom, and it'll be really interesting to see how this, this plays out for sure. Uh, James, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but uh, we're going to link to the uh, uh, in November uh, International uh, Anti-Corruption Developments Newsletter. So I look forward to uh, seeing what December might bring us. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce the pre-publication pre-sale of my latest book, the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition, published by LexisNexis. It will be published in April. Quite simply, this is the best single-volume, single-author book on compliance programs. The creation, the design, the implementation, and the enhancements of best practices compliance programs are all laid out in this book. If you're in the compliance field, the compliance discipline, this is the book for you, far better than any other book on the market, if I may say so myself. I'm going to link to it in the show notes for pre-sale. There's also a discount. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.